Welcome to the For Evansville podcast. I'm Ross Chapman, and this is Jonathan Betcher here with me. And we get to explore how we can not just be in Evansville, but how we can be for Evansville. That's right. Today, we're continuing our conversation about uh, the well-being of kids in Evansville. And that's a huge topic, um, but we're uh, sort of doing a flyover this month of that broad topic. And today, we have two really great guests to dig into that with us. We have Larry May, who is the director of Indiana Kids Belong, which was kind of born out of an effort by some local pastors here in Evansville to address the foster care crisis in Vandenberg County and eventually led to the creation of this statewide organization that's kind of part of America's Kids Belong. And they are working statewide with DCS to create partnerships between churches and the state to help solve foster care problems, which is really cool. And then we also have Perry Black from Youth First. They do a lot of work helping support not just youth, but also families, helping them build resiliency and have healthy, stable homes and relationships. And so we're really excited to dive into this conversation with both of them about the well-being of kids in our community. And you did hear Jonathan, right? We have Perry and Larry on today. That's right. It's going to be an awesome, awesome time. No, these these two people are people we know and care about and we think the world of, and they really do live for Evansville. And so, in fact, we're going to start our podcast with something we want to ask all our guests, which is, when did you become for Evansville? Was it an event? Was it some piece of data you learned? Was there a person that helped you on that journey? When did you really move from being in Evansville to being for Evansville? Well, I'll tell you a story. I moved here in 1998 because my husband accepted a job at the University of Southern Indiana. And when I first came to Evansville, I thought this is going to be a great move for him. It's going to be a great move for my kids. But I don't know about me. (laughs) And uh, it took me a while, actually, to to find my place in Evansville. But I think working for public television, I had the great opportunity to meet a lot of people and tell a lot of stories. Mm. And I think that really those stories and and the opportunity to meet a diverse group of people and learn the history and uh, just be engaged in the community um, made me feel like I was home. And also made me feel like I was for Evansville. And I think the move to Youth First just made it even more, uh, it just created an even stronger bond for me to be a part of this community, engage with people who care about kids. I think for me, it was probably not so much until I began to see the wounds uh, uh, that I began to have more of a passion for the city. And I think I, I lived probably half of my adult life thinking, hey, it's a pretty, pretty good place to live and nobody's really struggling too much. I never said that. I probably knew better than that, but I didn't see much of the struggle. And I think as I became more exposed to the struggles, uh, there was more of a passion there. And I, and I also have to put a plug in to my son-in-law. Um, he moved to Evansville and his love for Evansville inspired me uh, to love Evansville even more. The guy was 30 years younger than me, but been a very good role model on how to love your city. 
That's really awesome that uh, it sounds like part of both of your answers is that you became more for Evansville as you learned more about the challenges that our community faces. And that's really kind of the goal of this podcast is to expose more people to the needs and dreams of our city so that they can fall in love with our city in a deeper way and be more for Evansville. So thanks for being on here with us to help us uh, offer that to our listeners. Um, I want to kind of ask a similar question to that, but specific to this topic. And that is, uh, how did you get involved in the work that you do now? Maybe give us a brief description of your role uh, as it relates to the well-being of kids in our community. And why are you passionate about that? Why do you wake up every morning and focus on that role specifically? Well, thanks for having us. I am Perry Black with Youth First. I'm the president and CEO of this nonprofit organization founded in Evansville and Southwest Indiana. And I joined the organization in 2004 when we were a staff of 14, nine of which were, were master's level social workers. And in 2021, we're a staff of 88. 67 of which are master's level social workers. So it's been an amazing journey to build the capacity of this organization to strengthen youth and families. We are about improving the mental health and well-being of young people and families, equipping them with caring relationships and resiliency and coping skills so that they can manage whatever comes their way. Kids and families are dealing with traumatic experiences. In fact, I would say the pandemic has made traumatic experiences universal. And I guess for me personally, the reason I do this is because I care about kids as well. I am not a social worker. I'm actually, my background is actually journalism. I worked in television news and previously to joining Youth First, worked for WNI and public television, producing programs and documentaries. And I wanted to find out how public television could support the work of Youth First. And we started a partnership and then I fell into the opportunity to join the organization. So it's kind of come to me organically and naturally, but I also believe that the skills I bring have uh, helped the organization as well. Yeah, and it's probably worth mentioning that any if if any of our listeners have kids in uh, EVSC, there's a good chance that they have a youth first social worker uh, at their school that's available um, to them as a counselor, and that that's something that you guys provide um, right there in the schools, right? That's right. We're in many of the EVSC schools, all of the Catholic diocese schools, in many of the schools in surrounding counties, Posey, Gibson, Wark, Pike, and beyond. We're actually in 11 counties in Indiana now, in yeah. 92 schools. Yeah, that's incredible. Larry, what about you? Well, and again, thanks for, for having me on. I'm thankful for, for Evansville. And in fact, you guys are sort of part of my story for why I'm here. So, there are um, about 400,000 kids in the U.S. foster care system, about 12,000 in Indiana. And um, Indiana Kids Belong is a state chapter of a national organization called America's Kids Belong. And we started Indiana Kids Belong about 18 months ago. And we exist 
to really dramatically improve the experience and outcomes for these kids in the U.S. foster care system so that they can thrive in safe, loving families and supportive communities where they belong. That's not always their experience. And certainly to get into the foster care system, there's uh, abuse and neglect that causes a child to be removed from their home. So there's trauma there. The reason I'm involved, um, I think the beginning of my story was when we adopted from El Salvador, we adopted our daughter, who's now 17 years old. We adopted her about 10 and a half years ago from a group home in El Salvador. At the time, we didn't even know you could adopt through foster care. Didn't really know much about foster care. We were sort of your typical suburbanite family and life looked good. And we didn't know much about poverty or neglect or abuse or anything like that. But uh, Deanna sort of opened our hearts to better understanding of what it's like for kids who've not had a safe, supportive family their whole life. She was well taken care of in this home for the first six years of her life, but certainly didn't have what our biological kids had for their first six years. So she sort of opened, cracked the door open for Tammy and me to consider uh, vulnerable kids and work what their needs are. And then we became CASA volunteers. Tammy and I became CASA volunteers. Um, I did that personally for about four years, Tammy a little longer than that. And that really opened our eyes to um, the foster care system here locally and just the challenges that are faced by the kids and the families. So what we do at Indiana Kids Belong is we help recruit and support foster families, recruit more of them, and, and encourage support groups to wrap around them. Uh, we try to engage businesses and churches in that regard. And then we also have a program whereby we produce high-quality videos of kids in the foster care system who are legally free for adoption to help them uh, get adopted out of foster care. That really connects with the topic that we want to get to today, which is uh, this idea of family stability, the importance of um, kids being in a stable home situation and a in a safe family environment. Both of your organizations really help to address some of the challenges that take place when kids do not have that stable, safe loving uh, home or family environment. Can you speak to, you know, what is the value that that brings to a child? And whenever they don't have that growing up, what are some of the challenges that they're going to be facing? Well, um, from youth first perspective, we know and research proves that every child who has a caring adult in their life will have more success later in life will find their path, uh, be more engaged in school and be healthier in their approach to life. Hopefully the caring adults in a child's life are the parents. Mm -hmm. And if they can't be the parents, then we want to make sure they do have caring adults in their life. It might be a pastor or it might be an aunt there's so many possibilities of caring adults in a young person's life. Certainly teachers are. Um, so we're not trained to be parents. I mean, people have role modeled it for us, I suppose, and some role models aren't the best. Uh, so it doesn't hurt to have some support and some training, so to speak. Youth First offers programs called Family First, and those 
programs really help develop parenting skills and good communication skills, help strengthen the bonds between kids and families, help parents understand positive discipline, how to keep the family together when there are disagreements and and resolve conflicts in healthy ways, and how to help uh, young people develop the social skills and good communication skills and decision-making skills um, that will serve them well over a long time. So as much as we can, we want to give families uh, that support. Uh, But if that's not, if that home life is not going to be healthy and safe for the young person, then we need to give them alternatives. Can can you kind of zero that in, Perry, on um, like if we're thinking about an individual child who is growing up in a family situation where those conflict resolution skills aren't present or the parent hasn't had good um, role models to kind of teach them some of those parenting skills. Like how, how is that going to affect a child growing up? Or like, what are some of the challenges that they'll face as a result of that? Or maybe what are the benefits that that child gains from being in a stable, safe family unit that are maybe going to be missing if some of the skills and things that you're talking about are not there? Sure. So perhaps one of the most important things for parenting is consistency. Uh, Kids need to be able to trust that um, when the rules are set, that those rules are clear and consistent in the family and that the parents follow through like they expect the young person to follow through. So um, without consistency, there can be chaos and a chaotic life is not a healthy life. Um, You can't trust your environment. Um, You are constantly on edge, uh, worried about um, what's coming around the corner. That is not healthy for anyone, especially not a child. So I would say consistency and love, love, of course, being the most important. And that's how you show love a lot of times with kids is giving that that consistent approach to parenting and and establish those rules, establish the consequences and be consistent about them. Um, But it's all about love and limits. That's what we say in the Family First program. You've got to set limits and boundaries for kids. They need them. That helps them grow up to be healthy. And you've got to show them all the love in the world. Yeah, that's really good. Larry, kids who are entering the foster care system, they're kind of on an extreme end of that spectrum of of family health and stability um, for the state to decide to remove a child from their home. Uh, There has to be, as you mentioned, a certain level of abuse or neglect because we know that whenever that child is removed from their home, that we're adding trauma to their life. Can you kind of speak to the challenges that kids entering the foster care system are up against? What are they facing? What are uh, What's kind of their mental and emotional state like often whenever they're entering foster care? And then what's the best way for us as a community to help them with those challenges, to walk through those challenges with them? Yeah, well... You're exactly right, and it's not easy. Um, Perry used the word chaos, and I think that's maybe one of the best words you could 
use in terms of what a child's feeling at that time when they're removed from their home. Uh, there's a, you, you guys probably are aware of the Isaiah 117 house in Vandenberg County, and that's a really cool, fairly new thing where when these kids are removed, they can they can go there for a day while the caseworker identifies a, an appropriate foster care placement. And uh, it's just a loving, comfortable, quiet, positive, non-chaotic place for them to go. So when kids come into care in the foster care system, all of them need a safe return to their family or safe return to a family. Obviously, uh, the family environment, all kinds of studies and statistics would suggest that there needs to be a safe and loving family. Now, that doesn't always have to be a blood family. Um, doesn't have to be the birth family. Ideally, that's the best scenario. But when kids come into foster care, about three-fourths of them, the goal is to get back into the home from which they've been removed. Uh, for the other fourth of them, the goal then becomes adoption, either uh, through kinship adoption, somebody else in the family, or somebody not in their family. Absent that, Jonathan, statistics, and I won't quote a bunch of them because it's not hard to convince anyone that that this is true, but kids that don't have that safe, loving family around them are more prone toward suicide, more prone toward addiction, more prone toward dropping out of school, unplanned pregnancy, homelessness, incarceration. So there's a lot of things that, uh, very negative things that if we, if we don't wrap good families around them, and it starts in many cases with a good foster family, um, but ultimately a safe and permanent, healthy family, then, you know, it doesn't look good. That's why I think Harry and I are all about helping these kids find connections to people that are stable. I would just add, she, she said love and limits. I think that's, that's huge. And um, I was really good at love and limits as a father early in my parenting days, but I've also learned a little bit more about connection as well. So mm. Uh, really good parents and foster families know that kids, especially those who've experienced trauma, you really want to focus on connection before correction. So it's it's really about being down on their level, really trying to understand what's going on behind the behavior as opposed to as a dad in my early fathering years, I didn't really care what caused my kids to act out. It was just they acted out and here are the consequences, but I'm learning learned a lot in recent years about trauma and how to, you know, connect with kids as well as correcting them. I wanted to ask a follow-up question. Maybe either one of you guys could answer, um, but just about the idea of ACEs. Um, I, this is something that we hear a lot about in our community. And I think nationally even is this idea of ACEs and how it affects kids. Um, if you guys could actually tell us what that stands for and what we should know about it, um, that would be super helpful. Sure. Uh, ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And all of us have adverse childhood experiences in one form or another. But the research shows that kids who have multiple adverse childhood experiences, that those are negative things that happen to them in, when they're very young. Those kids grow up to become, just as you said, Larry, more likely to become addicted, engage in self-harm or suicide, pursue violence, maybe um, be uh, engaged in domestic violence or child abuse or neglect, the more likely they're going to have other kinds of health consequences like heart disease, 
diabetes and uh, die early. Um, so in our work, we, we have around 3,000 uh, students on our Youth First Social Work caseload, and we track the kind of ACEs that they have. And 61% of those 3,000 students are economically disadvantaged. That means living in poverty. Living with parents who are divorced or never married could qualify as an ACE, depending upon the uh, stability of the home. That is no reflection on single parents. Single parents can be very good parents, but there can be a consequence for young people when divorce or a lot of conflict occurs in the home. A family history of substance use is another ACE. 42% of the students on our caseload have that, and a quarter of the students on our caseload have a family history of mental illness. A third have a family history of child abuse or neglect. 11% have an incarcerated parent. So the, the more that they accumulate, the more difficult uh, a child's life could be. And so we want to make sure we're wrapping them with as many resources and positive relationships and connections and care as we can. I've, I've heard it said many times, we shouldn't be asking or thinking what's wrong with that child. We should be asking what happened to that child. Mm, yeah. And then we can build those connections as Larry says. My name is Rashida Ajabadi, and I am the Program Development Director for Memorial Community Development Corporation in Evansville, Indiana. Memorial Community Development Corporation is a comprehensive community-based organization that was created by the Memorial Baptist Church in 1994 that addresses community needs under five pillars, youth development, real estate and housing development, economic development, health and human services. At Memorial, we believe that God is our provider, protector, and he created each of us uniquely for his purpose. And because of that foundation within our faith, we see spiritual development as really the core. So spiritual development is not an isolated component of youth development. It's really a foundation for all the arms or the branches of development. And we look to implement that spiritual peace within all of those things. So when we're talking about spiritual development, we are talking about who God is, who we are and our identity in him. And we're talking about our values and the principles in which we live our lives. We're also talking about a connection to God, a relationship with God. It also um, includes the religious engagement piece so that young people are able to have a connection with their peers and with other people of faith because all children, all people rely on relationships. That's important for children um, because some children don't have families. They don't have a community. They don't have a sense of belonging. And the same way that we as adults need people 
We need those connections. We need those relationships. Children need that as well. Um, in our 27 years of offering various youth programs, we've seen how that connection to the church, we've seen how helping kids to develop a value system, helping them to understand who they are and that they do have a purpose, because that's what we believe as Christians, we've seen them be successful. We've seen them um, achieve their goals. We've seen them make better decisions about who they may spend their extra time with and, you know, avoid some of the not so positive behaviors. It's important for children to understand their purpose and understand who they are. And if we can do that from a spiritual context, my personal belief is that children are more resilient when that is challenged by the world or by their peers. I know that kids are having a really hard time right now. And so I think that it's important as not just uh, people of faith, but just as a community to understand that um, and, and to do our part in trying to help them, one, know that they aren't alone, um, to try to engage them as best as we can, given the limitations, and to share, you know, our values and help them to understand that they do have a purpose and that they are important and they are valued. So you mentioned early on in our conversation that COVID and the pandemic have really kind of introduced this sort of situation of universal trauma, that we have all experienced some level of trauma because of the pandemic. And um, we also talked about chaos as it relates to a lot of um, kids who are in unstable home situations or family situations, that it's that uncertainty and chaos that leads to a lot of that trauma. I think that's something we can all relate to a little bit. Uh, the uncertainty, the chaos, that seems like kind of a, a consistent theme that all of us have experienced over the last year, year and a half. Um, so could you guys both speak to specifically how has the pandemic and this season of uncertainty impacted both kids as well as parents? Um, what, what has that extra strain done to families? And what are some of the challenges that have come up? Um, how has it affected the foster care system, uh, all of those things. Give us a give us a picture of what the pandemic has brought to bear on this topic. I can I can speak to the foster care side. Well, and one thing that's in common, whether it's a foster family or um, you know a more traditional family setting, the virtual school has had a huge impact on families. You know, uh, more pressure on parents to help kids. Uh, navigate through uh, their schoolwork. In Vanderbilt County, most of the public schools have been open most of the time, but there was certainly a season when they were not, and that contributed to a lot of stress. Foster care specifically, I think the two things come to mind. One is that, first of all, there have been less report. The numbers are actually down in our in most counties uh, in terms of report reported cases of, of abuse and neglect, and that's not because abuse and neglect have gone down, but the mm -hmm. the sources, the, the, the trips to the doctor or 
uh, teachers being close to those kids, the places where referrals often come, there have been le- there's been less opportunities to do that. So we've seen evidence that there's been a lot more unreported uh, abuse and neglect in the system. That's that's unfortunate. But then for those kids that are in foster families, certainly there's a lot of um, getting to doctor appointments, getting to therapy appointments, uh, court hearings have been delayed. COVID has really thrown what's already a pretty overwhelmed system into a greater state of disarray in some cases, just because there, there may need to be some court action taken to for the betterment of the child, but they can't get to court. So it's been a struggle. It's been, that's certainly added to the, the challenges already faced by these families. Perry, what about you? I know um, Youth First has been really intentional and innovative in some ways, um, working together with other organizations to, to help address some of the additional stress. Can you talk about that a little bit? What are some of the problems and ways that you guys have sought to address some of those things? Sure. So when the school buildings were closed last spring, Youth First had to figure out a way to stay connected to vulnerable kids and families. And uh, we did that by staying connected to uh, the school, uh, finding ways to be engaged with food delivery so we could at least meet kids and families in the front yard and, and get eyes on them. We supported other initiatives so that we knew we had ways to connect with kids and families. And then we established virtual platforms and uh, special phone lines for all of our social workers. So they remained on the job even when school buildings were closed. And then we um, were supported with funding that allowed us to work through the summer because we just knew what a burden it was and how stressful it was. Normally our social workers are aligned with the school year. So they were working through the summer caring for kids and families. And in the fall, we were very supportive of uh, school opening, helping school administrators plan for how to transition kids back to school, how to kind of bring the calm to that process and uh, let kids and families borrow their calm uh, as they transition into a different way of learning. We call our Youth First Social Workers Specialized Mentors for Kids and Prevention Coaches for Parents and Teachers. And I would say that the prevention coaching work has really accelerated in the last year because teachers have been under such stress and many teachers are also parents. So here they are managing uh, classrooms and also trying to manage their families And we've done more support for educators and continue to support parents one-on-one alongside um, supporting kids individually. And our kids, I think we're seeing more intense concerns. They're about the same in terms of coming to us for mental health concerns or home life concerns, but the intensity of that concern seems to be greater and the need for more continual support is definitely there. Um, I think our suicide risk assessments are also up. Um, Our life-threatening situations that we're addressing are up in the last year. And so there is a lot of red flags that indicate to us that we're going to be dealing with the ramifications of the pandemic for at least a generation. Hmm. Wow. I think most people especially if they have kids, they kind of understand the strain that 
COVID has put on families, but can you um, just kind of zero that in on an individual level a little bit and um, just kind of help us understand like what, uh, how has life changed for a lot of parents and, and kids and family situations like, like connect the dots between the pandemic and the strain and, and what's that doing to families, especially families that were maybe already struggling a little bit to have good conflict resolution or cope with stress in a healthy way. And then, um, you know, what are some of the resources that have been available to them specifically for those types of things? Well, one thing I think we have to appreciate is a lot of people have been going through loss, um, most tragically loss of life. And we have supported kids who've lost parents or grandparents or loved ones to COVID. Um, but they've also gone through a sense of loss for just the way they used to live and be, um, a sense of loss about how you interact with your friends and uh, just be a normal teenager, so to speak, or get to enjoy prom or uh, go out with friends. Um, and I think that whole that that loss is something that has to be mourned. Uh, and that grief, uh, the grief is real. I heard a young, uh, uh, a senior in high school yesterday shared with us uh, what her experience has been. And she talked about the lack of motivation. She struggled with motivation since last spring. And the Youth First Social Worker has helped her stay motivated. She talked about how hard it was to study, to work from home, to study from home, because she had to learn these um, time management skills that many mm -hmm. college students don't even have yet. You know, mm -hmm. college students are struggling with that. But here she was, you know, high, middle, junior and middle middle school and high school students were having to be more uh, self-sufficient. And their parents needed to go to work. So right. it wasn't like there was somebody at home over their shoulder, helping motivate them. Um, so they had to develop that skill and that's still stressful and it can also be demotivating. So um, we need to make sure that kids are getting the support they need. This particular student shared that um, she's graduating from high school this year. She's a fir the first member of her family to graduate from high school. Wow. And we still have kids in our community who are first in that way. And we need to help them find uh, a path where they're going to be able to pursue their hopes and dreams. But it's very hard when the world is walking around on eggshells and there's so much fear and worry. Uh, I think about what kind of memories kids are going to carry from this. Uh, I recently had the opportunity to create a fairy garden with my grandchildren. And that was a memory that I hope they'll carry with them because the prior year has, we haven't been able to make many good memories. We haven't been able to be together much or interact in that way. And there were a number of days during that period when uh, their parents had COVID where they actually couldn't even interact with their parents hmm. and they're very young children. And I think about, you know, is that a memory they're going to carry forward? I want, I want us all to be able to, take those negative memories and bring 
positive memories forward. And that's what we need to be able to do through this pandemic. Okay, Perry, did you say it was a fairy garden? Yeah. Can you please enlighten me about what a fairy garden is? I'm curious. Come on, Ross. We know you've made some fairy gardens in your day. <laughs> I, I do. I do love the point you're making about what are the positive memories we can help people think about and carry forward instead of negative ones. And, you know, there have been some positive things come out of it, at least for our family, you know, just spending more time outside together, eating a lot more meals together, you know, and hopefully that's true of many families. Um, but that is, yeah, that's, that's what I hope for my kids is that they can look back and think that was the time when we like were together all the time. And that was kind of cool. I mean, there were some challenges, um, but yeah, that's, there, there could be some wins there to, to really help people think about. Yeah. I remember when I called Dr. Stenstrom to ask him to be on our podcast about mental wellness. I, I told him that I just finished building a snow fort with my kids. And he said, oh, I just prescribed that to one of my patients. <laughs> he said, he said, That's you good. know, the best thing you can do right now is just go play in the snow with your kids. That's, that's going to do uh, wonders for you. So, but I think uh, maybe one of the silver linings of the pandemic and all of the stress and uncertainty that we have been experiencing has been that maybe we have the opportunity to have a little more empathy for parents who are in a situation where they're experiencing uncertainty and stress all the time um, when there isn't a pandemic going on. And so I'd like you guys to kind of speak to that a little bit, because I think we often have this image in our minds of parents of children who are in these situations. We see the parents as the problem or as just bad parents or bad people. And the reality is oftentimes they're facing these kinds of challenges and this level of uncertainty, or maybe they haven't had people in their life to model some of those parenting skills for them. Um, so can you guys both speak to that a little bit? And maybe um, what does it look like for us as a community to champion parent success? When I was a CASA volunteer, um, I found myself frequently, so you're advocating on behalf of a child as a CASA volunteer, and I would find myself frequently getting angry at the parents, right? So these parents must be bad people because look, look what's happened to this child. And then one of the things I learned to do was to get to know the parents. Often I would try to connect with them, take them out to dinner, meet them in a park somewhere, whatever. Uh, some are more open to that than others. But almost inevitably, when I did that, my posture toward those those so-called bad parents changed in one meeting because what I would learn is that they had parents that had exposed them to some of the same hurts that they were passing along to their kids. So this is this is cyclical. And uh, in fact, when it comes to predicting if a child will enter foster care, the number one risk factor is the mom's child welfare history. So let's not be thinking in terms of how bad the parents are. Let's be thinking about how we can invest in them and love them and help them through healing. If they get well, they're, they're certainly going to be better at helping their kids uh, overcome things. So one of the things I encourage people to do, you know, when you think about foster care or kinship care or being a CASA volunteer, all of these things sound like big commitments and they, and they are, but everybody can, 
everybody can do something. And one of the most simple things that we can do is to go up to someone and ask, how are you doing? And how can I help? Um, and, and even better than how can I help? If you know that person well enough, you could say, could I help you by doing this? Could I babysit your uh, five-year-old son every other Friday night? Could I bring a meal on Sunday nights for your family? Sometimes people have trouble answering the question, how can I help you? Because it almost sounds like you don't want to impose on someone by volunteering something. But if you go in with the idea that you have a way that you'd like to help, you can do that. It's not most of us either know a foster family, or if we don't know a foster family, we certainly know a family who is in distress, um, mm. you know, with uh, schedules and challenges of being parents. Um, in fact, I don't think there are any families with kids who are not in distress, <laughs> but certainly we can we can look at it closely. And we know the ones that are in particular distress. And just to go up and ask them, how can I help you? Or can I help you? By doing this, to me, that's the best first step. And I'm, I'm always, I'm all about. Hey, sign up to be a CASA volunteer. Sign up, go look into what it takes to get licensed to be a foster family. And and those are great, good investments to help these kids and families. But it doesn't have to be that deep, and it doesn't have to be that high level of commitment. Just to step forward and and um, offer help to someone because that can make a huge difference. You give a a distressed mom and dad one night off every other week. Um, without the kids, and and you have maybe relieved a, a big stressor for them. My name is Joy Howard, and I'm a professor at the University of Southern Indiana. Uh, I want to talk about racial equity today. As a white person growing up in San Diego, California, what I was told directly and indirectly as a child was basically that race and racism is a thing of the past that ended in the 60s. But when I moved to South Carolina for college, I was quickly hit with some cold, hard facts that negated everything I'd been told. It was because of some really close relationships that I had with people who were patient and loving enough to tell me that I learned the story about race and racism wrong, that I began to ask really tough questions. The biggest aha I had back then was the shattering of the idea that racism is primarily or only a conflict between individuals. And I began asking and observing, wondering and researching the question, well, what is racism if it's not just about a hateful person who decides to speak or act on that hatred? So fast forward to today, my focus is on race and racial equity in schools. I'm especially interested in the experiences of black mixed race children in schools and looking at the ways that community and collaboration can create equitable experiences for our children. So in terms of why racial equity matters, let me start by saying that I believe our children are our hope. They remind us of what life is all about. They remind us to keep dreaming. They remind us that we can make friends with people who look different from us and act different from us. They remind us to be silly and they remind us to ask questions that we stopped asking a long time ago. They remind us to be better and do better because they're always watching and they're always listening. 
So with those beliefs that children are the best of us, it's devastating to know that we as a community are failing far too many of our children. Now, I don't say that to condemn us locally. It's a national and I'd even say in some respects a global trend. So let me offer a few facts to demonstrate what I mean by these inequities. So something that listeners may or may not have heard about is the school to prison pipeline. That's the notion that children are unfairly punished in schools, like being suspended and expelled. And this has a major effect on the likelihood that they will fail or drop out of school. The result of this is that children end up in juvenile justice systems or involved in the penal system in a very early age. African-American students are five times more likely to be incarcerated than their white peers across the country. Oftentimes, the offenses for punishment are very subjective or minor, such as violating a dress code policy or using a particular tone or volume or body language or verbal responses, all of which are highly culturally interpreted. And sometimes teachers like myself, who grew up in a European cultural context, hear or see tones or styles or statements that are mistranslated as being dangerous or offensive through our cultural lens. If a teacher is committed to learning about their students, there's hope of trust building and improved outcomes. But if a teacher interprets these cultural differences as wrong or bad, this is one way that racism operates in school. And if children are kicked out of classrooms and out of schools, whether it's to go home or to go to an alternative school or the juvenile justice system, trust is broken. And then students are very unlikely to believe that anyone at school wants them to succeed. So the information I'm going to share is actually from a community report conducted by Dr. Timberly Baker in 2018. What she found a few years ago was one, that black students are four times more likely to be suspended than any other student. Two, black students were six times more likely to be arrested from school than any other category. Three, multiracial students are overrepresented in the category of verbal aggression as being the reason for suspension. Four, students with an emotional disability were five times more likely to be suspended than any other special education category. And five, Hispanic students have the greatest risk of being suspended for the quote other or nondescript offense category. These numbers, these statistics are children's lives. In the past several years, I do want to say, though, as a community, we've made some serious positive strides in education. There's so many people I've met for the past couple of years who care deeply and want to change these trends that I just said. But we have a lot of things to learn and a long way to go. I would say I want to remind us that it does take a village to raise a child. So to our village, I would say, please continue to learn and to listen, to get involved in the ways that you can contribute to work towards justice and equity. So the last question that I want to ask you both um, to weigh in on is what would change about our community if every family were stable and healthy. So we've talked a lot about families in our community that maybe don't have conflict resolution skills. Maybe um, they're not able to cope with stress very well. Maybe um, they have some other factors that are kind of out of their control that are putting their family in a situation that just isn't 
good for anyone in the family. What would it look like? Uh, how would our community be different if all of the families that are struggling were healthy and stable? Well, we would have safer, healthier communities. Safer, healthier families lead to safer, healthier neighborhoods and schools and ultimately communities. And we would have a huge savings in taxpayer dollars for all of the social ills <laughs> that we pay for um, hospitalizations and addictions and teen pregnancies and violence, crime. We, if, if we start at the core of strengthening families, uh, it will pay a huge wave of dividends. Yeah, and I would just add the word that you guys like to use a lot, Ross and Jonathan, is flourish. I think kids would be flourishing, and uh, you'd see people reaching their uh, reaching their God intended potential, and and not encumbered by uh, some of these social wounds that we've talked about today. Well, you guys are all doing amazing work, <clears throat> and I just want to say thanks because you've been leading well during this moment of chaos and crisis and i've got to actually talk with perry like every week um and it's been remarkable to see how youth first especially has just really stepped up and i know ikb has as well so thank you guys for doing that and thank you guys both for being with us today and sharing your perspective thank, thank you, you. Okay, Jonathan, so this is the, the part of the podcast that I, I really think is important because we get to debrief a little bit. So we've just heard a bunch, and I like, I like processing with you and with our listeners. And one of the things that struck me uh, was the idea of just love, like that the, at the core of what we hope happens or, you know, what a really good vision would look like of how we could help kids with all of their holistic care, you know, there was this idea of love that they were talking about. And we've hit that on several episodes. It seems like it's a recurring theme. Sure. Um, you know, it's like, that's, it is kind of all about love. There's even songs about it. And, <laughs> you know, and so I was just thinking like, okay, how does that relate to the well-being of kids in our area? To your point, there have been a lot of songs and <laughs> yeah. cute sayings and things like that written about love. And I think because of that, love has become a really cheap word mm -hmm. that kind of loses its meaning. So I think it's important to draw to mind, like, what do we mean whenever we say love? I think it embodies both that idea of connection that has been really important in this conversation about kids. Kids need that connection. They need that sense that somebody cares about me and I feel attached yeah, to them. I can depend on them. There's an attachment yeah. there that is dependable, that's consistent. Um, but whenever we talk about love, we're also talking about a kid having this sense that somebody is putting my well-being as their number one priority. Yeah, And that's like what really good parenting feels like when you're a kid. Yeah. Like right, the sense right. that my kid, that my mom or dad will do whatever they have to do 
to take care of me yeah. and to prioritize my well-being. Then that's what um, you know. Jeremy and Rob talked about in our last episode that um, the best thing that they can do for kids uh, who come under their care is to just say, "We're going to do whatever it takes right. to um, make sure that you're doing well." Mm-hmm. And so, um, whenever we think about this idea of family as it relates to love. Um, really what we're talking about is an environment where kids are growing up with that sense of being loved and also learning how to extend that to others, uh, to reciprocate it back to their parents, to um, extend it to their siblings or to those outside of their family as well. Um, that That's such an important and kind of like visceral, fundamental part of human development. Yeah. You know, what we're talking about whenever we talk about families and kids is this is the place where you learn how to be a human being, where you learn how yeah, to be a person, right in your family. you learn mm-hmm. how to relate to others. And, um, and every family is broken, right? In some way. And so yeah. we, we learn some good things and we learn some bad things. Exactly. Yeah. And if yeah. you grew up in a home where you learned a lot of bad things, then it's really hard for you when you become an adult to create an environment that's stable and consistent and safe for yeah, your own kids. Where love and is so, really experienced at so, a deep level. Uh, yes, exactly. And so whenever we think about this topic that we're in of how can we as a community support the well-being of kids, I mean, what comes to mind for you whenever whenever we bring in this idea of the importance of family? Like how does that change the way that we think about supporting kids and their well-being? Well, what was striking to me was when I think of like how we can care for kids, especially kids we might say are in more need in whatever way that might be, uh, we we have a program mentality sometimes. Like if we uh, can distribute enough food and cover the basic needs and make sure they have somewhere they can go with their mental health and, you know, get all these bases covered through, you know, community-wide programming. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all good. But what struck me was they were saying – if those programs don't lead to opportunities for people to love another person, uh, then they probably don't go far enough. They don't really do what we need to have happen, which is that every person would experience love and be able to give love. And so if our if our programs don't result in families loving another family or a person extending love to another person, um, then that's, that's really we're just doing relief work. We're putting band-aids on a bigger thing. Um, And the human need is love. The human desire is love. And so that just struck me as we were, you know, and I think Perry and Larry, you know, they, they are all about loving kids and making sure that they have loving environments to be in. And I think that's great. And we need all the strategy and programming and investment that we can get with that. But I think it does come down to that person to person relationship C.S. Lewis defines love as unselfishly choosing for another's highest good. Mm. And so this isn't like a sentimentality kind of thing that we're talking about. It's a commitment. It's a, it's a dying to self kind of choice to say, uh, I'm invested in this person because I love them. And that means I'm going to do A through Z for them, you know? Um, and I, and I just think that would be the kind of place I'd want to live where people are really doing that. And where the the structures and the programs of nonprofits and schools and churches is about loving people. Yeah. That would be awesome, right? Yeah, absolutely.
Well, we hope you enjoyed uh, our conversation on this topic of the well-being of kids in our community over these past two episodes. Next month, we're going to be diving into the topic of housing, which is a super important part of what does it take to flourish in a community. Um, You need a safe, affordable place to live. Uh, And that connects to all of the issues that we've talked about so far. And so we're going to be diving into that topic. We're going to have some great guests for that as well. But we also want to hear from you and we want you to be part of this conversation. You can do that by emailing us directly uh, at the email address info at forevansville.org. You can also connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at forevansville. We'd also love to hear direct feedback, you can do that by just leaving a review on whatever podcasting platform you're leveraging. It gives us a chance to not only hear from you, but help others understand what our show's about and uh, understand how they might learn or grow or what to experience when they uh, tune in. So we hope that you'll do that and we look forward to hearing from you. Mm-hmm.